announcement, and that is that early voting for the Texas primary begins this coming Monday, June 29th, for the uh, runoff elections. That's very important because so few people go to the runoff elections and vote. So I strongly, strongly encourage you to make sure you get down there for early voting. It goes for two weeks through Friday, July 10th, and I think the following... When's, when's the main election, Cheryl? What is this day there? Oh, election... Yeah, you, there you have it. I just didn't read the next line. Election day is Tuesday, July 14th. Okay, so that is that is important. There are several runoffs, I think, that are important, especially uh, going down the ticket on a couple of the judgeships. So do your homework, do your research. Somebody has a question on somebody, um, you can email me. Maybe uh, I won't know on a couple of them I do know and do have opinions. But um, I'd encourage you to make sure you get out, get out to vote. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness." Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever." Before we begin, let's bow our heads together, and we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that we can be spiritually prepared to uh, study the Word this evening, walking with the Lord if necessary, using that time of silent prayer for confession of sin. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we're thankful that we can come together this evening to focus upon your word, to focus upon you, to recognize that you have given us principles, guidance, examples throughout Scripture on how we can face and handle every situation in life. What we need to do is learn to study, to ask the right questions, to dig through the Scriptures, to look at the examples, and we will find the answers. They are not necessarily easy to find, but they are there. And we can use them to handle all of the situations that we face in this life. The challenges of any government, of any nation, at any time can be resolved by going to your word. And the only hope, the only solution that will last is a solution that is based upon the principles of Scripture. Father, as we continue to talk about government principles from the scripture, talk about law, and talk about ethics. We pray that you will open our eyes to the internal integrity and consistency of scripture, that we might come to understand the wisdom 
of the Founding Fathers and how they constructed our system of government, and also what we can do, how we should vote, how we should be involved ourselves in this political process. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Okay, I want to start this evening by looking at this survey that just recently came out that I was uh, alerted to yesterday, or Tuesday rather, I mentioned it a little bit on Tuesday night, that came out from the uh, Arizona Christian University. The reason I'm going to this is because as we continue our study, how should we then vote, we are in the middle of the section dealing with ethics, dealing with who is man, how did God create man, and uh, what happened to man. How God created man was that God created imperfect. What happened was that he disobeyed God and brought sin into the human race and sin into all of God's creation so that not only were the two human beings in the Garden of Eden uh, spiritually uh, separated from God, what we call spiritual death, but that all of God's creation was was corrupted. And so this tells us, as I pointed out last time, that man is not basically good, man is, is basically, basically evil. And that is one of the reasons that we have to have law. And we have to have those who enforce the law. And that refers to not only the police, but also all of the officers of the court that are involved in the legal process. And that is because human beings are, are sinners. Our foundational verse is Psalm 11.3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And part of the foundations of any stable nation is their judicial system, the laws, the application of the laws, the enforcement of the laws, and the adjudication of the laws. And that is necessary because of the uh, depravity of the human heart. Now, total depravity doesn't mean man is as bad as he can be. It just means every aspect of our being has been affected by sin. So we have to look at this. But this survey came out, and it really focuses on two questions that are part of this. Apparently, every month they're coming up with an, uh, part, uh, another analysis of, uh, of what has been going on. And so this is done at the, um, at the American Christian University, and they have a worldview center that is overseen by a man named George Barna. I don't know how many of you have ever gone to the Barna uh, Research Group website or have read things that have come out about Christianity that's been developed by the Barna Research Group. But George Barna founded this in 1984, and it's just called the Barna Group now. And it has become one of the most respected marketing research firms that focuses on faith and culture. It is, uh, he serves as the president of the organization. He has also served with several hundred a parachurch organizations and thousands of churches over the last uh, 35 years, 36 years. He's written uh, more than 50 books, and he has done a tremendous amount of, of analysis. 
and his work is frequently cited as an authoritative source by the media, and he is said to have been, to be the most quoted person in the Christian church today. So what these things that he produces, these surveys, have a lot of weight behind them. They, are, they, are, they have a tremendous amount of te- integrity, and I have frequently gone to them for insight and information on the trends of the day. So what we learn as we go over this is that only 39% of Americans today view human life as sacred. The two issues in this particular worldview survey focused on how many look at human life as sacred and how many um, and how many believe in the goodness of the human race. So on this first area, only 39% of Americans today view human life as sacred, or he defines it as having unconditional intrinsic worth. And that's what we've pointed out uh, in the last couple of weeks in our study in Genesis uh, chapter 1, is man is created in the image and likeness of God, and therefore every single human being has value, significance, meaning, and purpose, every single human being. But yet there are only 39% of Americans who hold that view. He goes on to say that there's uh, only a few conservative deeply religious groups that continue to claim um, that within those groups they continue to have a majority who view human life as sacred. And those include adults who have a biblical worldview. Now, among those who he identifies as having a biblical worldview, 93% believe that human life is sacred. Uh, 60% of those who attend an evangelical church, now we all know that's a fairly broad category, 60% of those who attend an evangelical church believe life is sacred. That's pretty pretty pathetic if you ask me that an evangelical church doesn't understand that. They're not taught very well. A category he calls born-again Christians. I'm not sure how that differs from evangelical church. Maybe they go to a a denominational church, but they still consider themselves a born-again Christian. Sixty percent hold to a sacred life view. Political conservatives, 57 percent. So that means that 43 percent of political conservatives do not believe that human life is sacred. People 50 or older... 53% believe that human life is sacred, and among Republicans, 53% believe that human life is sacred. So that shows us that over the last 30 or 40 years, the number of people who value human life as unique and distinctive and of value, inherently of value, is declining. That's why we have a race problem is because there are too many people in this country who no longer value human life as sacred because they are out of touch with the Bible and out of touch with God. Among certain religious groups, only a minority viewed human life as sacred. Among those who attend Pentecostal churches, only 46%. Now, you have to distinguish, I don't want to get into all this, between Pentecostal, those are official Pentecostal denominations, versus charismatic churches. Those are two different categories if you're technical. 
Mainline Protestant is 45%. Catholic is 43%. Then he looks at this question, whether or not man is basically good or basically evil. And he says almost 70%, 69% of Americans see human beings as basically good. Now, I mentioned that the other day, and in talking with a few people, we talked about that, and we thought, well, that's pretty much why we see uh, the peop- so many young people and so many people in the country wanting to bring in some sort of utopia because they believe man is basically good, and man, if man is basically good, man can be perfected, and society can be perfected. I mean, this is the root of socialism going back uh, a couple hundred years to uh, various uh, groups that started experimenting with uh, communal living and and uh, socialism in the mid-19th century. They thought everybody was basically good, and then everything fell apart because people were not basically good. So 69%, but that's, according to Barna, a significant decline from 30 years ago. When research by Barna, who also did this survey, discovered that 83%, well, that's not, uh, that that's a drop of about 14%. Uh, 83% in the mid-80s uh, believed that people were basically good. So I think they've been mugged by reality. But it's still a, a too large of a number. And it depends on where those people are located and the influence they have. He says that the segment least likely to say people are basically good are people with a biblical worldview. We're just a bunch of pessimistic fuddy-duddies. So that's only 52%. That's pretty ridiculous. 52% with people with a biblical worldview. If it were my study, they wouldn't have a biblical worldview if they, did, if they thought people were basically good. Uh, he says, uh, and he, and then he points out he points out that one third of Americans possess alternative views about humanity. For instance, I thought this was interesting. One out of every eight claims that people are simply material subject substance purely biological machines. So they're neither good nor bad. They're just, and they're, they're so consistent with a naturalistic uh, evolutionary view of, of uh, human origins. Because if you believe that, then man is nothing more than just a, a combination of, of chemicals that are reacting to one another. But that destroys all human responsibility because if you're just a machine, uh, biological machine, then you can't hold anybody accountable or responsible for anybody. So how's that going to affect your ethics and concepts of right or wrong? You have no right to a concept of right or wrong. Another one-eighth, another 12% argues that people are part of the mind of the universe. I love that. We're just part of the mind of the universe. That's 24% or wacko. Another... Um, uh, and then smaller numbers describe human beings as, quote, an illusion. 
Now think about that. This this goes back to Cartesianism. Was it Descartes was imagining that what if everything I think exists that is an illusion? If nothing exists, well, these are people who aren't using that as a theoretical starting point. They really believe everything is an illusion, but that goes along with a lot of Eastern thought as it is. So some people describe humans as an illusion. We don't really exist. And or they describe people as sleeping gods and part of the soul of the universe. He goes on to say that the perception that people are good is most frequently based on feelings rather than facts. Let's send them all to work in the prisons for a couple of weeks. And often, he says, it reflects their self-view. In other words, they think more highly of themselves than they ought to, than they think they're basically good and not sinners. So this is a problem that we have today, is that when we're dealing with the people who live in the United States, that the majority believe that people are basically good. So they don't understand the need for checks and balances in the government. That was so much part of the thinking of the founding fathers, that, that power corrupts, and it corrupts absolutely. And so there has to be a continuous check and balance in order to keep people from abusing things. So I took a couple of charts out of the book that I caught out of the study and copied them. Now that's big. You, maybe you can see that. I have a hard time even seeing it on my laptop. But across the top, you, the, the question here on the, this first one is, what is the value of human life? The first category here is church affiliation. And then over here you see political ideology, and then you have three perspectives. Human beings are God's creation, made in his image, fallen, and need redemption. In terms of all who have some sort of Christian affiliation, 56% believe that. Among evangelicals, it's 85%, and then I I read the other statistics earlier. Uh, Human life is sacred among all, uh, 39%, and then among evangelicals, it's higher at 60. So these are the ones who don't believe man's in the image of God, but human life is important. And then on the question of abortion, you have the issue of ambiguity there. And in the second chart, this is really the one I wanted to focus on, was that people agreed that, I mean, the question was people are basically good. Now, I have a problem with that statement in that I think it's ambiguous. Because there are a lot of people who haven't thought very deeply, and when you say people are basically good, they say, well, you know, my neighbors are nice, and they have good intentions, and they think of it in that way. They're not thinking in terms like we would. No, they're totally depraved, and they're sinners. So maybe if they were asked, well, do you think people are sinners? They might say yes, but mostly they want to do good. So I think uh, that there may be some wiggle room there. But anyway, no matter how you look at it, he says... About 70 to 77% uh, uh, all think man is basically good. So, Houston, we have a problem. This isn't going to work. This isn't realistic. If you're operating like this, you're going to have problems. Now, at the conclusion, got a rather long quote I wish to read to everybody because I thought it was perceptive. Uh, Barner wrote this. 
It is under the heading that we are protesting the wrong problem. It is specifically addressing what is going on on today and and the social unrest and this attempt to defund the police. He says a movement to defund police departments might make sense if people are innately good. People with a humanistic worldview argue that crime and violence happen because of poverty, bad parenting, systemic discrimination, and other external forces. Yet crime statistics, political tensions, tendencies toward anger and hatred, and America's moral deterioration and confusion suggest that we are neither innately good nor that emotional responses to empirical challenges will solve the problems. Sounds like he's been listening to what I've been teaching the last few weeks. Emotion just won't do it, and that's all we see right now. He says the underlying issues are ill-formed character and a broken moral compass. Now, who's responsible mostly for forming character and developing a moral compass? Parents. That's the primary responsibility of parents to teach that and to train the children. So this is showing what we'll see coming up as a preview of coming attractions, the breakdown of the second divine institution and the third divine institution. Economic, social, and cultural depravity are outgrowths of our moral and character, uh, character deficiencies, not causes. Now that's an important question because what's going on, what's been going on in this country for about a hundred years is attempts to solve the problems by addressing the economic issues, social issue, and cultural issues as if they're the problem. But they're not the problem. They're a result of the problem. The problem is sin. And even when everything is going to be perfect, and there will be a time when we're almost in a utopic environment, and that's called the millennium, there'll still be sinners on the earth. There'll still be a measure of the curse. But there will be a perfect king. Part of the curse will be rolled back, and the uh, lamb and the wolf will lie down together. And we will have a perfect government, and guess what happens? At the end of the millennium, most of the people are going to, almost all of the unbelievers, and there'll be many of them, uh, millions and millions of them, will rebel against Jesus Christ because of their volition, because of divine institution number one, human responsibility toward God. They will reject God and reject the truth. So the problem isn't, Education. The problem isn't um, social structures, social justice. The problem isn't a cultural problem. The problem is a sin problem. And without a solution to the sin problem, you can't solve the other problems that are results of sin. He says, poor people with godly character and biblical morals make good choices. Rich people with bad character and inappropriate morals make bad choices, despite their education, fame, wealth, and social class. An objective assessment of history shows that adults, like children, need ethical and reasonable boundaries that are consistently and justly enforced, and that's a parental issue. 
Remove those boundaries and you get the kind of anarchy that results in disrespect, violence, crime, and hatred. You cannot change the hearts of people by outlawing racism. You will not create peace by passing laws and forcing compliance. Efforts to facilitate economic equality through resource redistribution, in other words, socialism, have never successfully resulted in the expected or desired outcomes. From a biblical perspective, the problem is that we have a sin nature pure and simple. We can deny it, but it still exists. Every society can benefit from specific systemic changes, present-day America included. But any systemic change, but any systemic changes designed to transform the culture will be short-lived and of limited impact unless the hearts and minds of the people who populate that system are transformed first. And that only comes from the gospel. He's not saying there's, that we can't have a measure of change through political change, but it's, it's only a certain type. It doesn't address the root cause. Logically, given that a person's worldview is largely in place by the age of 13. Think about that. Parents, grandparents, by the age of 13, and then is refined and expanded during a person's teens and 20s, focusing on the moral development of young people and college students will be an effective, lasting strategy. Raising our future leaders to experience and understand love, compassion, mercy, truth, and goodness will make a massive difference. So, just to review, we're looking at this concept of a worldview. This is what has to be developed in children, and the earlier the better. And you can start that by talking to them about it when, they can, when you don't think they can understand a word you say. Parents profoundly underestimate the ability of infants to understand and comprehend. And if you just repeat and repeat and repeat, what you're doing by talking to them is setting the, 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 the framework of their brain, the, the dynamics of the physical brain function, so that eventually it is responsive to what is being taught. Reading them the Bible, talking to them about God, and then one day it's going to be a very natural thing for them to understand it because that's what they've heard over and over and over again since they came out of the womb. So a worldview begins with understanding ultimate reality. It's grounded in God. It's called metaphysics. What is your view of God? Is it a personal infinite God? Or is there just eternal matter? Or is it energy? Or is it the soul or the mind of the universe? Or is it just nothing? Those are the options. If it is a personal God who created us, then we have a basis for knowledge, for knowing truth, for knowing absolutes. If there's nothing there, or if it's just the impersonal universe, then we have no basis for explaining anything because everything ultimately is irrational. It all just happened by chance. If it happened by chance, then there's no ultimate reality of reason. 
That's one of the destructive consequences of Darwinian evolution and all naturalistic worldviews. By the way, James Sire, I've mentioned his book before, University, um, uh, what is it, the, the Universe Next Door. Uh, the fifth edition is out, but the sixth edition is coming out as an ebook in Kindle, and also it's coming out in Logos in um, in August. In his fifth edition, though, or may have been his fourth, I skipped that one, but I did end up buying the fifth one last week to look at it. He's restructured his category so that he has uh, naturalistic um, worldview related to Darwinism, naturalistic worldview in terms of economics, and that's Marxism, and then a naturalistic worldview that there's no meaning whatsoever, and that's nihilism. So he's, he breaks his categories down uh, that three or four of the worldviews he had as just autonomous before he has them as subcategories of the naturalistic worldview. So he's, he's, you know, that's what happens when you write is you constantly keep thinking, teaching, talking about these things, and it refines your understanding. So ultimate reality affects how you understand uh, knowledge, is there truth? Are there absolutes? How do you know right from wrong, just for in, unjust? And then that leads to ethics and the questions of what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad. And in our Judeo-Christian worldview, I'm developing the importance of these last three areas that sin is corrupted, the human race and God's creation. That was the worldview of the founding fathers. And if this, what we'll see tonight is if this nation is going to continue under our constitution, then we have to return to this because without this view, there can, the, the system doesn't work. Fifth, God has given principles and laws for the right conduct of the human race in this corrupted universe. These are absolutes. We cannot mess with them. We cannot change them. We cannot deny them. We cannot live as if they're not there because God as a creator embedded these in his universe. And eventually there will be a time of accountability, a judgment. So God continues under the sixth point to oversee and direct his creation toward his perfect end, and that is providence. God is involved, and his perfect end will include judgment. So last time we looked at the problem with the human race. Just a quick summary. Adam and Eve were created morally, ethically, physically, and spiritually perfect. A perfect God cannot create something imperfect. So they are created perfect, but he gave them free will. He gave them volition so that they could decide to obey or disobey. And so they uh, were faced with a test with the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they disobeyed God and ate from the fruit of the tree, and they became instantly spiritually dead. Sin separated them from God and brought a judgment on all of God's creation. They were judged so that they were spiritually dead, separated from God, and all of creation. The curse affected all of, of the animal kingdom. It, it affected uh, biology. It affected botany. It affected the organic structure of everything in the universe. And as a result of that, laws 
became necessary. There had to be laws in order to restrain the sin nature. Now, starting next week, I'll start looking at the divine institutions. The first three divine institutions were all given and established in perfect environment. Their purpose is to promote prosperity and stability and happiness. But the next uh, three all came as a result of sin. Human government after the fall, after the flood. In the Noahic Covenant, you have to have human government in order to restrain sin because there was nothing in terms of human government to restrain sin before the uh, flood. And God said that he saw the human heart and that it uh, it was uh, focused on evil continually. So law is necessary. There had to be a division of people into nations because when they united with one language, they united to rebel against God. That is a picture of what will happen at the end of the millennium when the unbelievers will uh, unite to rebel against, uh, against the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the fifth divine institution. And then the sixth divine institution is Israel. And if you think back, I have defined the divine institutions to mean that it applies to unbeliever or believer alike. If you are obeying God, you have a good family, you have good marriage, you stay within the moral bounds, and you have a nation and you have good, wise government, then you will prosper, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. In Genesis chapter 12, Verse 2, God says that he will bless those who bless Abraham and curse those who curse Abraham. It doesn't matter whether you're a believer, whether you're a Christian, whether you are a Buddhist, whether you're Hindu. If you are good to Israel, God will bless you. If you're not, he won't. That fits the definition of a divine institution. And today we are on the rise. uh, Well, anti-Semitism is on the rise again. So what we saw was that throughout the Bible, there are numerous verses that indicate the corruption of the human soul. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Psalm 14.1, quoted again in Romans chapter 3, the fool has said in his heart, oh, excuse me, this is the next verses, Uh, or the last part of this verse is quoted in Romans chapter 3. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. That's in Romans 3, that last phrase. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. That's in Romans 3. Psalm 53, 3. Every one of them has turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. And then in one of many verses in the New Testament, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We could go to passages like Ephesians 2.1, that we're all born dead in our trespasses and sins. That is the nature of humanity. Now, last time I talked about the problem that occurred In Israel, after God gave them the law, they rejected the law. And they set themselves up as each person being their own moral authority. So you have something like moral relativism. 
that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, stated twice in the book of Judges. And we saw that what this brought about was chaos and corruption and defeat militarily. It destroyed the nation from the inside out. That is what will happen to us if we don't turn back to the scriptures. As a result of this, and the chaos and, the, and deterioration that occurred, God sent them one last good judge. The last judge in the book of Judges is not a good judge. That's Samson, and he never does anything right. But Samuel was a good, good judge, but the people still rejected him at the end of his life as a judge, and they didn't want his children. His children were corrupt. And they wanted to have a king, as they said, like everybody else. And we studied that last time in 1 Samuel chapter 8, one of the central passages on government in the Bible and the danger of a strong centralized authority. So you have the two uh, opposites now. You have the book of Judges that has moral relativism and everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. And at the other end of the spectrum, you have the strong autocratic monarchy. And under either one of those, there's going to be failures because in a fallen world, there is no perfect government. You cannot create it. There's no such thing as a utopia. And the way they define social justice, it'll never happen because it is built upon the assumption that man is basically good. And so it will never work. Now, what I want to do today is take you to the Mosaic Law. So you may want to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1, and we'll just go through the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I'll reference uh, several of them. Look at how this is set up. First of all, if we were to take the time to go through the background this starts when God has brought all of the Israelites to the base of Mount Sinai, and they have all been sanctified. They've gone through a, a two or three days of washing clothes, washing themselves, purifying themselves ritually to come to the base of Mount Sinai to listen to God. And when God reveals himself, he speaks audibly so that they could have recorded his voice. They could have videoed the thunder and the lightning on Mount Sinai. And God began to speak these words, not to Moses, but to the people. He be Notice how he begins. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me, and keep my commandments. Now let's look at this a minute. There's some important observations here. First of all, this is, the Ten Commandments are really a preamble to the entire Mosaic Law. 
So they set the stage, they set the foundation for the other 603 commandments, 613 commandments in the Mosaic Law. You may be able to remember that if you can remember how many seeds there are in a pomegranate. Remember, pomegranates were uh, uh, depicted on the hem of the robe of the high priest. There are 613 seeds in a pomegranate. That's the correlation. You see, God created it that way. It doesn't just happen. So this is the Ten Commandments. This is what establishes the rest of the law. This is what all of the other commandments, the other 603 commandments, all rest on this foundation. What did the psalmist say? If the foundations crumble, what will the righteous do? So he starts. it starts off with the metaphysic. It starts off with ultimate reality. Before you start telling people uh, what they will and won't do in terms of their lives, you establish the foundation, the authority, and the authority is God. And so God speaks, and he reminds them of who he is by focusing on what he has done. And if we look at at the Ten Commandments, it emphasizes that God is their Redeemer. He is the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt and out of the land of bondage. He is the one who freed them. He is the God who gave freedom to them. He also emphasizes the fact that he is God alone, that there is no other God. He said, you shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because other gods will have different requirements. Think of the religions, the fertility religions related to Baal, related to Moloch and live infant sacrifice. You think of the other different religions in the ancient world, a Dionysian religion or Bacchus where they got drunk in order to have a close relationship with God. All of these different gods and goddesses had different requirements, and you end up with this complete mess of ethical... Uh, antinomianism. And you can't have a stable culture and a stable society on that basis. So idolatry and and, uh, polytheism are rejected. So verses 4 and 5 deal with those particular issues. Now, just as an aside, if you try to uh, count up the Ten Commandments, you may have trouble. Uh, You may not realize it, but that there are Uh, Jews count them one way, Uh, Reformed theologians and Anglicans and Protestants, most Protestants, count them another way, Lutherans, and uh, count them another way. And so that's kind of interesting the way uh, that has come about. Remember when we compare with the Founding Fathers that the Founding Fathers were influenced by the Reformed or Anglican uh, tradition, and so they did. They looked at this, and in their view, two through f- uh, actually two through six that we're talking about is really the first uh, first first commandment. I believe I got that right. The Jews separated out verse two as the first commandment, but I don't see a commandment there. The commandment comes in verse three, and then the Jews would identify 3 through 6 as the second commandment. Uh, For Protestants, the first commandment is 
um, is all of this section from 2 through, through 6. Uh, Catholics would see 1 through 6 as also the, fir- fir- as the first, first commandment. So this is seen as one way or the other, this is foundational. You have to have the God of the Bible as the foundation of law. Now, we're not under the Mosaic Law, but the Mosaic Law, because it's given by God, is a pattern for what a legal system should be like. It doesn't mean that we take it uh, in direct application to today, but it gives us a framework for thinking about law. Another thing we learn here is the emphasis on the creator-creature distinction, that the God of the Bible is not to be depicted by that which he has created. He's not to be depicted by anything in the heaven above or on the earth below or that's in the water. You don't depict him with fish, a fish head like Dagon. You don't depict him with a bull like uh, Baal. You don't depict him in any other way. You You do not depict him at all. You also recognize that he is the God of both justice and mercy. Verse 5, I want to direct your attention to the contrast. In verse 5, he said, God will visit. So there's accountability. That was a big thing for the founding fathers. They recognized that people needed Christianity. They needed to understand they would be held accountable by God for for their lives, for the choices they made, for their morality and for their ethics. And without that, Uh, they would just run amok. So they understood they had to have a strong moral and ethical system, and they all believed whatever else they might believe about the Bible, they all believed the Bible was the absolute authority on what was right and what was wrong. And in this statement in verse 5, God visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, And then verse 6, but he shows mercy to those who love me. What have we learned in our study about these kinds of statements that contrast hate and love? They are showing acceptance and rejection. So those who hate God are those who have rejected God. Those who love God are those who have accepted God. And they are defined and known by those who keep his commandments. So that's obeying, obeying the law. So the Ten Commandments give us an insight into the importance of law for the restraint of sin. So that being true, what we learn from that is that law is inherently an expression of ethics and morality. You've probably heard it said you can't legislate morality. That is a bogus statement. It might be trying to say you can't make people be moral, but all law is based on a system of morality and ethics. All law is saying that something is right and something is wrong, and that's morality. So this idea that that has come up that, well, you can't legislate morality is just plain wrong. You can't make people be moral, but all legislation, all law is assuming that some things are right and some things are wrong. And so because this has been promoted mostly by the left, but there have been a lot of conservatives who've picked it up for the wrong reasons because they're inherently antinomian, what essentially happens is it's eroded the social dimension 
of law related to marriage, related to homosexuality, related to gender, because of this idea that that is fluid. We don't want to force our morality on people. Well, if you tell people it's wrong to murder, that's, that's forcing your morality on people. Everything here is related to morality. This takes us back to our passage we looked at briefly last week, Proverbs 14.34, righteousness exalts a nation. In context, righteousness means conformity to a standard. In the wisdom literature of Israel, righteousness meant conformity to the Mosaic law because that is the standard of God's righteousness. It expresses God's righteousness. So when the nation is obedient to God's law, they will be exalted. They will be great. They will have all of these blessings from God. But sin, which is missing the mark, missing the standard of God's character, uh, that is a reproach to people. That's the only two options. You're either headed in the direction of uh, exaltation and prosperity of a nation or to the collapse and the reproach of a nation. And these are absolute categories. You find the same thing in Proverbs eleven ten through 12, which I also looked at last time. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there is jubilation. But the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. He who is devoid of wisdom despises his, bro- his neighbor, but a man of understanding holds his peace. The greatness of America lies not in her industry and her creativity and her intelligence and her production, but in the character and morality of its people. That's what foundationally made America great, was its Christianity. And as that eroded from the end of the 1700s, through the 1900s and was influenced more and more by works, which always is a product of arrogance, then you begin to see the foundations crumble. Now, another passage that was a favorite of the founding generation, it was one of George Washington's favorite verses, and he quoted it often. Micah 6.8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Now, those last three phrases are really important. What does it mean to do justly? Some translations interpret that as to do justice. That's not quite right. The word here is not tzedek. Now, the Hebrew word tzedek means righteousness as it refers to the absolute standard For example, righteousness as a a quality of God. Righteousness refers to the standard of God's essence. Justice is the application of that standard. So justice as an application of that standard would also be an an accurate translation of tzedek. This is the word mishpat. Mishpat has the idea of governing or ruling in a way that is consistent with the ordinances of God's law. So you have this word to do justly to, that is to enact laws, regulations, and policies 
that are consistent with the ordinance of God's law. That's why in Deuteronomy, a king had to write out, hand write out the law, make copies of the law, and then once he had made a copy of the law for himself, he was to read it every day, is to be reminded of the standard that God had for a nation and for a national leader. So on the one hand, you have to be just in conformity to the law, but on the other hand, you had to practice mercy. You had to have mercy because people are sinners and people fail. So that is a good quality in a leader. It's not just the arrogance of legalism where you're always pounding the strongest and harshest penalty. You are to love mercy and avoid arrogance. You walk humbly with your God. That's the key, is that because you are walking with God, because you have that rich spiritual uh, association with God that is the root of the development of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and what we need in leaders is wisdom, and that comes from a walk with the Lord and a focus on the Word of God. But we've had very few leaders who really have had a good spiritual life. There have been a handful down through the centuries, but not that many. And I don't think we've had uh, any who have had a rich spiritual life, with maybe one exception, since the end of World War II. We have had a lot of pragmatic politicians, a couple of people who approach statesmanship, but we have not had any that have really, truly been men of the word with one possible exception, and that, I think, would be Ronald Reagan. Other passages that exhibit this, Leviticus 18.4, you shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. Now, you have these two different words here. In Leviticus 18.4, you have judgments and then ordinances. And then you get into 18.5, you shall therefore keep my statutes. Now, I, I just always question why translators do this. The Hebrew for statutes is the same word that's translated ordinances in the previous verse. So those two words are, the, actually, the, the, the Hebrew word is a word that means something inscribed in stone. Think about that. Something inscribed in stone is not easy to erase or change. So that's how law was viewed as something that is based on an absolute reality. You shall observe my judgments. That's mishpah. That is the mishpah is the application of the law. And keep my ordinances, that which was written in stone, to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. Note it by saying I am the Lord your God. He's, rec he's stating that this is the foundation for your ethic is who I am in my character. That's the metaphysic. That's your ultimate reality. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. It's not to control you and have a miserable life because you're under some sort of, of um, restrictive legislative morality, but it's so that you can have real life and stability and happiness and that you can have prosperity and your, your family's uh, you'll be productive. You'll have many children. They'll be able to grow in safety and security, and they will marry and have more family and experience the blessing of God. In Leviticus 19.15, we read, You shall do no injustice 
in judgment. That's the application of the law in accordance with God's character. You shall not be partial to the poor. It's interesting that is put first because there's a false compassion where somebody's poor and they haven't had the privileges, they haven't had the opportunities. Well, maybe we're going to cut them some slack. Well, the law says, no, you don't cut them any slack any more than you cut slack to the wealthy. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness, that's the standard, setic, God's character, you shall judge, that's the word shafat, it's the root of mishpat, you shall judge your neighbor. That's the responsibility is this idea of don't judge or you'll be judged and applying that to areas of law and other things like that is just silly superficiality. We're We're to make discerning judgments all the time about people, events, circumstances, things of that nature. But that particular passage and statement of Jesus is you're not going to run people down and make decisions that only God can make. Okay, where you're talking about people's sinfulness and running them down for, for that reason. Now, the other thing that we learned from looking at the Ten Commandments is that God recognizes private property. He affirms private property because in this foundational part of the law, it says you shall not steal. That recognizes that people have the right to own property. And they have the right not to have it taken from them, from people who are neighbors, from thieves, or from the government. They have a right to property. And you see this all through the Mosaic Law. There's all kinds of stipulations related to inheritance and passing on property and how property ultimately all belongs to God. And incidentally, in the Mosaic Law, there's no tax on property. Because property is supposed to be able to be maintained as the foundation of the wealth of a family or the wealth of a clan because God wants people to become wealthy. Now, not in the health and wealth gospel idea, but if you walk with God, God will bless you. And there are many examples in the Bible of wealthy men. Abraham was wealthy. Job was wealthy. Uh, the other day, uh, we were talking about uh, the, the men who came out to help David. Uh, they were wealthy. There were many wealthy people who contributed from their, uh, from their largesse, from their wealth, to support the ministry of the Lord and Paul and many others. Now, you don't sit around and say, well, I'm just going to let the wealthy people support the ministry. There are certain things that wealthy people have been able to do, and it's a mark of their, in some cases, I think it's a mark of their gift of giving. I have known men who are very generous and who who I believe have the gift of giving, and they have given uh, just generously from that which God has, has blessed them. But there have been many, many others who are not wealthy who give uh, from all that God gives them. But God gives us property. He gives us means. He gives us uh, riches uh, to whatever degree they may be so that we can use them for the benefit of the body of Christ. And so we see that stealing this command establishes the right to private ownership of property. 
and that after the conquest, land was given to the tribes, clans, and families for ownership of the land. There's nothing wrong with owning land. Socialism comes in, as we'll see, and wants all of the land to be held in common, all of the resources to be held in common, but it always fails because its assumption is that men are going to do what is right because men are basically good, but men are basically selfish and greedy, and it always falls apart, and some are lazy. Third point on that was that wealth was never condemned in the Bible, but its misuse was. But there's a lot that's said in Proverbs. I just want to run through this. These are often misinterpreted by, by a lot of liberals, liberal theologians and liberal people who want this to be a foundation for governmental welfare. This is not addressed to the government. This is addressed to people to respond with their own individual volition to help other people. Do not rob the poor because he is poor, nor press the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their cause and plunder the soul of those who plunder them. There's an accountability there. God says that I am the God of the orphan and the widow, and I will protect them. So we need to be warned not to take advantage of the poor, the orphan, or the widow. Proverbs 31.9 says, Open your mouth and judge righteously and plead the cause of the poor and needy, often because they don't have the knowledge, they don't have the resources, they don't have the ability to plead their own case. That doesn't mean just because they're poor and needy that somehow they have a, uh, a, a certain virtue to them. Often they are poor or needy for a variety of reasons, uh, such as their own laziness, such as sin, such as divine discipline. It can be any number of negative reasons. In Isaiah, we have passages that relate to the judgment of God on Israel because the people were selfish and disobedient to the law, not because the government wasn't taking care of the poor. It wasn't ever a responsibility of government to take care of the poor except for a very small amount that was taken as a tithe once every three years. But that provided a minimal safety net for the widows and orphans because the the family, divine institution number three, as we'll see, was so important to everyone that there were very few that didn't have family. It was a family's responsibility to take care of everyone in the family. So Isaiah one seventeen says, Learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow, often because they just don't have anyone in the family to watch over them. And then because of Israel's disobedience to God, the previous chapter just announces that judgment is coming, which eventually come first, first through the Assyrian invasion and second through the Babylonians, that God is going to punish them because of their selfishness and because of their unrighteous use of the resources that God gave them. But it wasn't because the government didn't do it. It was because the individual people refused to be generous with that which God gave them. Uh, Isaiah 10, 1 through 3, Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees. So you had unrighteous government. Uh, they wrote misfortune, which they have prescribed, to rob the needy of justice. Now, in this case, you have 
government who is uh, distorting the Mosaic law to take advantage of the destitute, to rob the needy of justice and to take what is right from the poor of my people. So they're uh, taking advantage of the poor. They are preying upon the widows and robbing the fatherless. Verse 3, what will you do in the days of punishment and in the desolation which will come from afar? In other words, the warning is punishment's coming. What are you going to do? Nothing. You can't stop it. Deuteronomy 24, 17 said, you shall not pervert justice due to the uh, you shall not pervert justice due to the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. Operate in grace towards those who have little. Jesus, though, reminds in the New Testament, the poor you will have with you always. Now, that isn't a justification for not taking care of the deserving poor. There, we'll always have the poor. We're not going to solve that problem through welfare uh, or any other human endeavor. We can help, but we will never eradicate the problem because the problem is ultimately going to come down to a sin problem. Why is there poverty? Poverty, Sin, divine discipline, living with other sins, and divine discipline, bad decisions, all of the reasons we suffer. We suffer because we make bad decisions. We suffer because those we're close to make bad decisions. We suffer because of both of those reasons. Uh, we suffer because God is going to take us through suffering in order to teach us things. Then we come to the reality check of 2 Thessalonians three ten through 12, where Paul closes out and he says, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. There's no free lunch. Don't ever give anybody something. There are all kinds of people who, who are not working and who are just living off of a government handout. But there's all kinds of things that need to be taken care of. In, in our country, that these people can be put to work on work crews by the government so that they are uh, doing all kinds of things from cleaning up the roadways to working on the roadways, anything the government can provide something so that they work for that which they are given. Paul goes on, but that's an important principle. If you don't work, you won't eat, period, God is not harsh. He recognizes that man is prone to irresponsibility and laziness, and so you have to do something for what you are going to be given. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner. So they had Christians in the church in Thessalonica who weren't working. They were just going to live off of the other Christians. Some things haven't changed. Uh, they're in a disorderly manner described as not working at all, but are busybodies. Now, those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness. In other words, no gossip and slander. That's what they mean by busybodies. They work in quietness and eat their own bread. Last week, to apply this to the founding fathers, last week I got a... a an email, there was a, a message, a specific message that was uh, put out by Ben Shapiro. Uh, ben Shapiro is the uh, founder of something called uh, the Daily Signal, and he blogs and he writes quite a bit. He is a child prodigy just about and conservative. And he wrote, 
the founding vision for unity, that is the founding vision of the founding fathers in the in 1776 and 17. Uh, 80s with the Constitution, the founding vision for unity presupposed a flawed human nature. See, they believed in total depravity. People were capable of sin individually, but capable of the greatest sin when backed with the power of federal force. Don't give them the power. Their sin nature will use it. The founding vision for unity also presupposed an agreement on the nature of rights and liberty. No man had a right to demand anything from his neighbor. Furthermore, the founding vision for unity presupposed that our strongest bonds would exist outside of government, in our families, our communities, and our churches. The founding vision has now been abandoned in pursuit of something more fulfilling a communitarian vision of reality in which the will of the mob is perceived as virtuous, in which every man has the right to protect himself from the vicissitudes of life and the cruelties of history by demanding redress from his neighbors, in which our strongest bonds are forged at the most centralized level. If you don't believe in total depravity, you will make so many bad decisions in terms of government and policy that you will self-destruct. This was understood by our founding fathers. One of the influential men in the founding generation was Reverend Samuel Cooper, who was a pastor in Massachusetts, and he was often asked to address the legislature in Massachusetts. He said in a sermon to the leaders of Massachusetts, quote, our civil rulers will remember that as piety and virtue support the honor and happiness of every community, they are peculiarly requisite in a free government. In other words, piety and virtue are necessary if you're going to have freedom and liberty. Virtue is the spirit of a republic. For where all power is derived from the people, all depends on their good disposition. The people must be a moral and virtuous people in order for it to work. Samuel Adams, who was a believer, he was one of the most cantankerous of the founding fathers, went on to be a governor of Massachusetts later. He said, revolution, excuse me, revelation assures us that righteousness exalts a nature. This was a very popular quote from Proverbs 16. Revelation assures us that righteousness exalts a nation. Communities are dealt with in this world by the wise and just ruler of the universe. He rewards or punishes them according to their general character. Notice what I've been saying all through this is that if we have a Judeo-Christian worldview, we're going to emphasize an absolute right and wrong. It derives from the Scripture. It is necessary in order to have a stable government, a stable economy, and a stable people, and that ultimately this is motivated by a concept of accountability to our Creator. All of that is in Sam Adams' statement. In a letter to Richard Henry Lee in 1784, he said, The strength of a republic is consolidated by its virtues. 
When was the last time you heard anybody talking about virtue as necessary in public school or uh, in universities or from the halls of Congress? The strength of a republic is consolidated by its virtues and the righteousness will exalt a nation. Does not the true policy, the honor and safety of our country, greatly depend upon a national character consisting, among other particulars, in simplicity and candor in all her public transactions, showing herself in reality friendly to those to whom she professes to be a friend? Benjamin Rush, who was arguably one of the most mature Christians in the founding generation, stated in talking about the evil of slavery, see, a lot of people today think that all the founders were pro-slavery. No, m- many of them hated the institution of slavery, and, and yet they couldn't come to an agreement. But many of the those who signed the Constitution did not agree with it, but they knew it was better to establish the law that would be the framework later for doing away with it in a further generation. Rush said, remember that national crimes require national punishments. And without declaring what punishment awaits this evil, you may venture to assure them that it cannot pass with impunity unless God shall cease to be just or merciful. George Mason was also against slavery. He was uh, served in the Virginia legislature and he also served on the, at the Constitutional Convention. And regarding slavery, he said, the most pernicious effect, it has the most pernicious effect on manners. Every master of slaves is born a petty tyrant. Slavery will bring the judgment of heaven on a county. As nations cannot be rewarded or punished in the next world, they must be in this. By an inevitable chain of causes and effects, Providence punishes national sins by national calamities. Justice, Chief Justice John Marshall helps us understand that when they talked about religion, they meant Christianity. I mean, it was a homogenous society. That Because it's not homogenous today is no excuse for abandoning our, our Christian foundation. Christianity and religion are identified, he said. So when they use the word religion, they meant Christianity. It would be strange indeed if with such a people our institutions did not presuppose Christianity. See, the thing you'll hear today in 90% of your classrooms in the country is that uh, the founding fathers were mostly deists and influenced by the Enlightenment, not Christianity. Well, not if you read what they said. Jedediah Morris was a congregational pastor. He had a rather famous son named Samuel Morris who invented the telegraph. Jedediah Morris said, To the kindly influence of Christianity, we owe that degree of civil freedom and political and social happiness which mankind now enjoys. All efforts to destroy the foundation of our holy religion ultimately tend to the subversion also of our political freedom and happiness. Whenever the pillars of Christianity shall be overthrown, our present republican form of government and all the blessings which flow from them must fall with them. If you know the word of God, you can prophesy like that. And now we're there. 
where the pillars of Christianity are being overthrown and all the blessings that come from it will fall. John Adams said, Religion and morality alone can establish the principles upon which freedom can securely stand. Without Christianity and biblical morality, the Constitution cannot survive. He also said in a letter in 1811, Religion and virtue are the only foundations, not only of republicanism, and that doesn't mean the Republican Party, that means a form of government. We were founded to be a republic, not a democracy. Religion and virtue are the only foundations, not only of republicanism and of all free government, but of social felicity, that means happiness, of social felicity under all governments and in all combinations of human society. The Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount contain my religion. Now, he didn't believe in later in life. He didn't believe in the deity of Christ. He didn't believe in the Trinity. I think he did when he was young. But he did believe that the ethics of the Bible were the foundation of stability in a nation. In another quote from Benjamin Rush in 1789, he said, The only foundation for a useful education in a republic is to be laid in religion, that is, Christianity. Without this, there can be no virtue, and without virtue, there can be no liberty, and liberty is the object and life of all republican governments. By religion, I mean to recommend in this place that of the New Testament. Charles Carroll, who was Roman Catholic, stated, Without morals, a republic cannot subsist any length of time. They, therefore, who are decrying the Christian religion, whose morality is so sublime and pure, are undermining the solid foundation of morals, the best security for the duration of free governments. Just a couple of other quotes. Matthias Burnett spoke to the Connecticut legislature in 1803 and said, without a sense of that... um, Feeble would be the best form of government without a sense of religion and the terrors of the world to come. Banish a sense of religion and the terrors of the world to come from society, and you leave every man to do that which is right in his own eyes. Let me just skip a couple of the others here and go to our conclusion. Foundation of all thought is our view of God. If you do not have the Judeo-Christian view of the God of the Bible, then you cannot truly answer the questions of life. How we know what we know with certainty comes only from a God who is stable and immutable and who gives us a system of ethics, right and wrong, and what is good and bad. And it is from that foundation that we are to make decisions about politics, government, leadership. And that is where we'll go uh, going from here. The next part of this study is going to focus on the divine institutions, and we'll begin that next week. Father, thank you for this time to go through this study to see the impact of your truth on this nation in its founding and to be reminded that on that foundation uh, we must continue to operate and to legislate and to govern. For apart from that foundation is self-destruction. Father, we pray that you would challenge us to be able to wisely analyze those who will run for office and make decisions for leaders that will be the closest possible uh, 
to these to these absolutes. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.